Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Yesterday, Israel barred representatives Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar from visiting under pressure from the president from President Trump. Then Israel and Tlaib said that Tlaib could visit her 90-year-old grandmother in the occupied West Bank after agreeing in writing not to promote boycotts against Israel during the trip. Initially, Tlaib thought she'd make the journey, but then decided against it. She said, visiting my grandmother under these oppressive conditions stands against everything I believe in. Silencing me and treating me like a criminal is not what she wants for me, Tlaib said of her grandmother. It would kill a piece of me. Let's talk about some of the larger issues at play here. With me is Sylvia Chan Malik, associate professor at Rutgers uh, University, where she's uh, with the American Studies and Women's and Gender Studies uh, program. And she's the author of Being Muslim, A Cultural History of Women of Color in American Islam. Thanks for joining us again, Sylvia Chan Malik. Thanks so much for having me. I wonder, you know, is this um, how different this is uh, than what we've been seeing regularly from President Trump? Because President Trump has berated people of color as a tactic here for a while. This is just kind of taking it um, global. Is is what what is different here? Absolutely. I mean, first of all, this notion that there's anything regular about this president. Um, I think everyone who watches and follows his Twitter feed kind of sees that. You know, there is no normal anymore. Um, his tactic is to kind of throw those norms by the wayside and try to push a new way of kind of, you know, these lines in the sand that, that, that he wants to draw to demarcate who is and who isn't American. You know, and so this is just the latest example of how he's kind of expressing this new way of governing uh, that has become kind of so, uh, you know, may, a mainstay in, in our everyday news cycle. Like, what did he do today? And, and this is this is the latest. Uh, does it leave us, though, with some pretty serious things to contemplate about uh, who comes and who goes in different countries? Because, uh, you know, people always get barred from countries. Uh, in, in this case, uh, people seem to be saying, well, it's U.S. Congress people. Therefore, you know, they shouldn't get barred. But uh, there seem to be degrees of uh, who can and cannot travel here. Absolutely. I mean, what is so particularly disturbing? I mean, Ilhan Omar, Representative Omar, uh, characterized this latest move of not letting herself and Congresswoman Tlaib travel to Israel um, and Palestine as a Muslim ban gone global, right? Asking Netanyahu in Israel to kind of enforce the same type of blockage of certain types of identities and ideologies entering Israel that many view Trump as doing within the, you know, the United States, right? And so within the larger context Text of where we are in regards to these issues about, you know, democracy and mobility. I mean, we're watching what's going on in China with the Hong Kong protests. We're watching what's going on in these different countries that we call despotic, right? Yet we have an American sitting president exporting bans 
and and and, and imposing kind of uh, 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 an inability for acting Congress people to travel abroad and making it a part of our formal foreign policy. And I think that is unprecedented. Uh, it, it, when it comes to Palestinians, it seems to be that they are the ones who, for sure, don't get to travel in the world. And uh, we, the United States bans uh, lots of Palestinians now. The U.S. is banning Hanana Shrawi, a, a longtime mm-hmm. diplomat for the PLO, doesn't let her come into the country. Uh, Omar Barghouti uh, is a co-founder of the BDS movement. He didn't get to come into the country and go to his daughter's wedding recently. That's right. uh, but there, there wasn't that big of an outcry when these people get banned. It was noticed a little bit, but uh, but we're banning people all the time. Uh, and, you know, this president is banning people all the time. Right. I mean, that's a great thing to point out that the U.S. itself is not in any way sort of innocent. I mean, at the same time that we champion ourselves as a beacon of democracy and, you know, these liberties that we take, we at the same time enact these types of repressive policies when people want to enter the U.S. But again, what is unprecedented about this is that this is on the global stage. I mean, we literally saw this play out where, you know, Trump has been tweeting against and issuing statements against uh, the, you know, the squad, but in particular against Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib, you know, two sitting Muslim congresswomen, right? And then taking it on the global stage where he is directly, you know, uh, uh, talking to Netanyahu, asking him to do this favor for him, and then tweeting it so that everyone can see, you know, this global political network. <laughs> <laughs> that is developing between these two leaders and how it is actively keeping two sitting members of Congress from making uh, a diplomatic trip, you know, uh, a trip that as Congress people. So that is, again, you know, what we have not seen before. And uh, um, uh, I noticed that like uh, even organizations like APAC came out and said, you know, we may not agree with the politics, but we agree that this person should uh, be able to travel. Um, how do you read that? I mean, organizations, there are a lot of organizations that are putting up BDS boycott right. laws in this country. And there's, you know, laws in 27 states, I think, including this one that I'm in, Illinois, that are anti-BDS. And, uh you know, I mean, an organization like APAC can come out and say, well, we should let these Congress people travel. But, uh, you know, in the meantime, we're going to uh, have laws against people organizing on this issue in this country. Yes. I mean, I see a very subtle dance going on uh, from right organizations. I mean, from a group like APAC, uh, uh, you know, representing Israel and the Israel lobby in the U.S. I mean, I see an interesting dance going on amongst conservatives and the right in which they are trying to, in certain ways, acknowledge how Trump's actions and his methods, right, are really making them uncomfortable about the ways in which this is shifting democratic norms. You know, you see this kind of, uh, of, of Congress people and then kind of dropping out of races and things like that, and then kind of coming out and saying, well, we don't like the way he operates. This again, APAC issuing that statement. It's one thing to say, okay, we don't like 
BDS. You know, we don't want this criticism of Israel. However, you know, this norm of saying we are not letting acting members of Congress travel to Israel or any, you know, sort of other country on diplomatic you know, uh, trips or, you know, with, with, with that type of representation, that is kind of drawing the line, right? And, and they're kind of hedging their bets in that way. That's what I see that um, as doing, APAC's actions like that and other people coming out against it, where it's like, you know, you may have gone a bit too far. How much of our headspace should we uh, spend on these kind of things? I always feel like we're being led to the distraction while the real issues uh, lose out sometimes. And and if every time you, uh, mm-hmm. you know, you you take the bait from Donald Trump every time you do this, but um, but you also have to recognize what's going on here. Yeah, I think that's a great question. I mean, for those of us, you know, who follow the news cycle every day, it's absolutely exhausting. Being outraged all, all the time is exhausting or having to respond to things. And especially, you know, as, as those of us who write about Islam and Muslims and foreign policy and issues of race, it's, 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 it's never ending kind of the response cycle, right? However, in this particular case and in general, about the types of comments and conversations that go on around uh, Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar and this new, you know, very different progressive voice that's emerging uh, in the uh, in the left wing of the Democratic Party. What I think is we can try to keep our eye on the bigger picture in order to kind of uh, circumvent or avoid this fatigue. Insofar as you know. The ways in which Israel and Palestine are getting talked about are shifting, right? Whereas Donald Trump is attempting to shift norms around kind of what is what is and what isn't acceptable in political discourse, the squad and, you know, this new emergent left are also shifting political norms about what is acceptable or what people are willing to hear and put out into the public conversation. So I think, you know, in order to counteract that constant reaction cycle and that fatigue we have to that cycle, it it might be a good, uh, you know, approach to keep an eye on the way the larger political discourse is shifting in really interesting ways that are not entirely negative. It seems like young people are the ones who are doing the shifting here. And uh, uh, really around Israel-Palestine, there's a lot of new thinking going on, and it's all from the young people. There, and then the, It's just uh, a lot different than the kind of thinking we see from the Congress people who take their annual trip to Israel with with APAC and they there's you know 30 40 Congress people from each side of the aisle who go and the not everybody's in lockstep with that anymore absolutely I mean the Pew uh, you know the Pew uh, research looks at questions around Israel and Palestine every year. And if you look at their recent surveys, every year these opinions are changing. Uh, Young people between the ages of 18 and 24, almost a majority of them are critical 
of Israeli government policy. I mean, they make a differentiation between government policy of someone like Netanyahu and the Israeli people themselves, right? But those those winds are shifting. And this is in particular in relation to the U.S. Jewish population. And might I add, within the U.S., there have been incredible coalitions and efforts to build interfaith, intercultural, interethnic coalitions between Muslims and Jews in this country, right? I mean, after the Tree of Life synagogue shooting here in the U.S., Muslims rose, you know, to raise money. And, and on the opposite, you know, when the Christchurch uh, uh, shooting happened in New Zealand, when Muslim communities in the U.S. were feeling vulnerable and scared, Jewish communities rose up to support Muslim communities as well. And a lot of this is through the efforts of this younger generation that does not see kind of the need, you know, to have uh, or does not not see the need, but does not want to have uh, be perceived as condoning a separate but unequal state, as many of them view, you know, the relationship between Israel and Palestine to be. Right. And so it's reflective also of changing relationships between Muslims and Jews in the U.S. because of this president um, and how new alliances are being formed there. So, you know, it, 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 it again goes back to that larger picture and these demographics are shifting and we have to be mindful that, you know, new configurations are going to emerge. Sylvia Chan-Malik is Associate Professor of American Studies and Women's and Gender Studies at Rutgers University. She's the author of Being Muslim, A Cultural History of Women of Color in American Islam. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about what's going on with Rashida Tlaib, Ilhan Omar, and their trip to Israel-Palestine. Thank you so much. July was the hottest month on record. We'll talk about the implications of warming next on Worldview. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. July was the hottest month on record. We're going to talk about the implications of extreme heat now. With me is Emily Atkin, a staff writer at The New Republic covering science and environmental politics. She's one of the organizers of Gizmodo's Presidential Climate Summit for the 2020 Democratic candidates. Good to talk with you again, Emily Atkin. 
Hey, thanks for having me. Also with me is Christina Dahl, Senior Climate Scientist for the Union of Concerned Scientists. Last month, she was the lead author on a report called Killer Heat in the United States, Climate Choices and the Future of Dangerously Hot Days. Thanks for joining us, Christina. Thanks for having me. Christine, I wanted to start with you because your report uh, points out a lot of things about the United States and a lot of data about the United States that I don't think people are fully appreciating yet. But we always think that climate change is something that's happening somewhere else in Alaska. You know, in Chicago, it's particularly easy to think that. And it's somewhere where flooding is happening somewhere else. But your point, your report really brings home what what is going on. Can you give us a kind of a thumbnail snapshot of the results here? Sure. So what we did in our study was we looked at the frequency of days that have a very high heat index. That's also known as the feels-like temperature. And it's a combination of temperature and humidity that most of your listeners are probably familiar with. What we found was that if we fail to reduce our heat-trapping emissions, we would see a staggering expansion of dangerous heat across the U.S., including in Chicago. Um, In contrast, if we aggressively reduce our carbon emissions and limit future global warming, we could contain that expansion and spare millions of people in the U.S. from the threat of relentless summer heat. And what kind of heat are we talking about here? Because uh, your your report really makes clear that, uh, uh, that it's really hot. It does. We looked at a few different levels of heat. So we looked at days with a heat index above 90, days with a heat index above 100, above 105. And then we looked at something that we call off-the-charts heat, which is a combination of temperature and humidity that exceeds the upper limit of the heat index scale that the National Weather Service uses. And that's heat that at that level we can't accurately calculate a heat index or warn people about what the dangers of those conditions are. What we found, for example, for Chicago was that historically Chicago's had about three days per year with a heat index above 100. That's sort of a typical average year for Chicago. But even by mid-century, if we fail to reduce our heat trapping emissions, that would rise to almost a month of those extremely hot conditions in Chicago on an average year. So there would be 10 times as many days as hot days as there are now. That's about right. Yep. Uh, that's really, uh, that's a lot to think about. Um, Emily, I, I know you've been writing about climate for a long time now, and uh, it seems like people and the media are beginning to appreciate and talk about this kind of thing more and more. I've noticed some uh, big splashy articles on the cover of the Washington Post and the New York Times about climate lace lately. Um, do you think people are kind of latching on to these kind of uh, realities? Definitely. I mean, in the last six years that I've been doing this, I've never seen the mainstream media pay more attention to climate change than I have right now. I've never seen more um, of a large public interest than I have now. And I think that's, it's pretty simply just because we're seeing the effects of climate change in a more visible way, in a more visceral way than we ever have before. Um, It's just becoming harder and harder to to ignore. What are the things that you're seeing and reporting on that are, you think are, are really worth people knowing? 
I mean, I think that this Greenland ice sheet melt is really important. Um, I think the fact that, you know, we just had the hot one of, you know, the hottest month ever recorded. Um, and in Europe, those heat waves actually contributed to the record ice melt that we're seeing in Greenland right now. We're seeing ice melting at a rate in Greenland that we weren't supposed to see based on scientific projections until the year 2070. And that's really important because a lot of our projections about what is going to happen with climate change, how climate change is going to affect the world over the next century are based on those predictions. So if Greenland is melting at a rate that wasn't supposed to happen until 2070, that means the sea level is going to rise a lot faster. The worst case scenario projections are that we uh, the sea rises six and a half feet by the end of the century. And that's under a scenario where Greenland, rapid, the ice sheet rapidly collapses. So we really should be paying attention to that. You know, I can't help but note that uh, President Trump's, you know, probably has seen the news about the Greenland ice sheet melt. And he he he's been talking about to his aides apparently buying Greenland and exploiting its resources. And there is this counter and he's not the only person who wants to explore the Arctic where it's melting. All sorts of countries are all over this. And it's it's almost a kind of a it's this infuriating counter narrative to 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 what's happening i i how do you understand what happens when when people hear about oh the ice caps melting well i'll go drill for some oil i mean so on brand right i mean it's just it's so on brand for the trump administration this isn't like a new a new uh, type of rhetoric it's it's exactly what the trump administration has been doing since day one is that they see uh, a natural resource and they say oh that's that's for us. Um, I mean, even I'm trying to remember when it was, I think it was back in March, um, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo um, went to Finland and he talked uh, and it was at a conference where countries were supposed to be talking about the challenges um, posed by global warming to the Arctic Circle and the Arctic region. And Mike Pompeo went up and he said, you know, this is a place of opportunity. It's a place of abundance. You know, this is where, all, you know, there's so much undiscovered oil and gas and uranium and gold, diamonds, fisheries. Like, this is great. We're good. Like, the, the ice melt couldn't be better. So this, I mean, the Trump administration has been saying this for a long time. And there's always going to be that narrative. And I think that as the as the area becomes more accessible by ship, we're not only going to see more attempts by the U.S. and other countries to reap the benefits that that region has, but we're also going to see more conflicts over it. I'm talking with Emily Atkins, staff writer for The New Republic. She covers climate for them. And Christina Dahl is with me, senior climate scientist for the Union of Concerned Scientists. And she's the author of a lead report, Killer Heat in the United States, Climate Choices in the Future of Dangerously Hot Days. Um, Christina, did uh, is there some data on how hot it is now in the United States? Uh, I mean, we can note that climate is changing already. There is, in fact, data that shows that the U.S. has warmed along with the rest of the globe over the past several decades, and we're seeing more and more events that are that we consider extreme or extreme heat events. Um, you know, in particular, we're seeing those events on the rise in the Northeast, in the Midwest, um, and those trends are expected to continue as well. Is there some reason for the Northeast having the big rises? Because I think when 
everyone uh, th- thinks about climate change. They don't think New Jersey is the hotbed of climate change, but it's had big temperature rises. Yeah, we tend to see that um, the rise in temperatures has been stronger at higher latitudes than it has been at lower latitudes in the tropics. And so that that fits with that profile. Um, and I think it's worth noting, since you raised the question of New Jersey, you know, New Jersey has seen an increase in extreme temperatures, but it's also seeing an increase in um, coastal flooding due to sea level rise. So we don't tend to think of New Jersey as being in, um, you know, uh, in the crosshairs of climate change, but in many ways it really is. Um, Emily, are there other places that people don't expect are in the crosshairs of climate change, but are in your reporting? Um, I find that the I find that the phenomenon of the, the urban heat index uh, is really interesting. You know, as we uh, go further in time, we have more and more people living in cities, which is actually uh, better for the environment um, to have people condensed in one area rather than spread out, taking up more land and more space. But um, cities in general just get hotter. Than, uh, than rural areas because of how they are designed, you know, um, as- like, you know, black asphalt and when the tops of roofs are, you know, are dark colors um, and the wind isn't able to get through buildings and cool things down. Um, so I just, I think it's one of the more interesting things that we don't talk about a lot is just the unique risks that uh, living in cities poses as the world gets hotter and how we need to redesign cities. Cause it's not, you know, it's not just that like, Oh, cities will all, always be hotter. It's just that we didn't design them thinking that it was going to get this hot. So, um, there, are, I think there are just really interesting questions posed by how do we revamp modern cities to adapt to the increased heat that we're going to see all over the world. Um, Christina, do you have some thoughts on that? Absolutely. The One of the challenges in cities, too, is that in addition to being hotter than the surrounding less developed areas, when extreme heat happens in cities and combines with the pollution that happens in cities, we tend to see increases in what's called ground-level ozone. And this is a pollutant that is particularly dangerous for people who have respiratory issues like asthma. So as we see temperatures spike in cities, we see you know increased um, irritation of those those respiratory issues like asthma. Um, I think it's also important to um, to note that extreme heat's been rising in many cities throughout the country. Um, so there's no you know one particular region that's seeing that um, uh, more in its cities than another. You know, we've all been hearing some stories that we're in peak air conditioning season about whether or not we should uh, run our air conditioning a lot. And all the people in the world who don't have air conditioning, most were an over, even compared to Europe, all the stories about Europe, we have lots more air conditioning than they do in Europe. Uh, how do you feel about uh, air conditioning, Christina, and what we should do about air conditioning if we're under threat from heat indexes, but... Uh, more air conditioning is more uh, more pollution in the air. Yes, air conditioning has undoubtedly saved lives. We know that um, lack of access to air conditioning is one of the contributors to heat-related illnesses and deaths during a heat wave. 
And so we know that air conditioning is going to have to be part of our solution. Um, it's, we're going to need it in order to stay cool and to stay safe. But the challenge is that we need to find ways to provide the energy that, that powers that air conditioning that's not contributing to increased carbon emissions. So we need to focus on making sure that our, um, our energy system is increasingly relying on renewable energy sources like wind and solar. Um, and also we need to make sure that our grid that's providing that electricity is reliable. We often see power outages during heat waves. And so, um, you know, if you, if you lose your power during a heat wave, the chances of you being able to stay cool just, you know, went down. Emily, I wanted to get your thought on this and kind of weave in some of the politics because I, I know you're involved in the presidential climate summit for the, for the 2020 election. Uh, you wanted a debate about this. Um, what 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 kind of political conversation do you think needs to happen? I think the main thing that our politi- our politics needs to understand is that you know we can we can obsess over whether or not we're contributing individually to the problem by using our air conditioning or by eating meat or by doing whatever we're doing. But the main goal and the main thing that we need to do, as Christina said, is to decarbonize the energy system. And nothing that you do on an individual level level is as powerful as prioritizing climate change in your actual vote. Um, So, and actually, you know, looking for somebody to lead the country who isn't, um, who, who doesn't prioritize fossil fuel development over preventing these awful things from happening. Um, if you want to prevent these awful things from happening, it's not going to happen by turning off your air conditioner. It's going to happen by making air conditioned power carbon neutral and making everything you do carbon neutral. Um, that has to be the priority. And so that's why I think that you know, that's why I've always thought that having a debate dedicated solely to climate issues wouldn't be, it wouldn't be boring. It wouldn't be a single issue because there are so many ways that we have to, you know, we have to make air conditioning carbon neutral. We have to make our agricultural system carbon neutral. We have to make concrete carbon neutral. How is the next president, how is the next Congress going to going to handle all that and how are we going to create jobs out of that there's so many interesting questions how are we going to make a carbon neutral healthcare system i mean i think it all would be fascinating and i think that you know if everyone just realized how much opportunity is in that we would have the opportunities for great discussions too and where do we stand on the presidential climate summit debate um well uh <laughs> cnn is having one um, they're having a summit or a, a forum. Uh, so is MSNBC. Both of those are happening in the um, beginning of September. They are um, forum-style events, which means that candidates will come on stage one by one to be asked questions by moderators um, about the climate crisis. I'm not exactly sure how the networks are going to make you know, frontline communities, front and center in those discussions. I'm not sure what they're going to ask. But right now we don't have um, an actual debate where, you know, all the candidates appear on stage to debate these issues because um, the Democratic National Committee, um, first of all, said no 
to doing that and second of all said they would disqualify any candidate from appearing in their debates if they participated in a single issue debate so that's why we're seeing some forums happening but not a real debate all right um is that's um that's it doesn't sound like that's a really great thing for the future of our country isn't it the whole point to have people open their mouths and really talk about this thing yeah i mean we i've been trying my best to kind of advocate and push for that i think it's really in the public interest to have the candidates debate climate change um just because it it touches on so many other issues um uh, it, you know it's not just about some some scientific thing it's it's really about how we reshape society and i think that having presidential candidates debate how we reshape society is you know what how, why else do we have presidents um so I mean, I would love for that to happen. It doesn't seem to be a priority of the of the DNC right now. Um, I hope that that changes, and I honestly hope that the CNN and NBC, NBC climate forums are. I hope that they are robust. Uh, I hope that they give the public what they deserve on this issue. Because I mean, not to knock the networks completely, but neither have a really great history wholesale of covering climate change with the rigor and seriousness it deserves. Um, but you know, Chris Hayes is moderating the MSNBC one, and, and he's actually been pretty great on the issue. So I have hope. I have optimism. Optimism is, is necessary in this whole conversation. So, Emily Atkins, a staff writer for The New Republic, covering climate. And thanks to Christina Dahl, senior climate scientist for the Union of Concerned Scientists. Last month, she was the lead author of a report on killer heat in the United States, climate choices, and the failure of the future of dangerously hot days. July was the hottest month on record recently. Thank you both for joining us. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Coming up after the break, we'll have Weekend Passport, where we let you know how to have an international good time on the weekends. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonnell. It's time for Weekend Passport, where we let you know how to have an international good time on the weekend. With me is my global citizen pal, Nari Safavi, who has some recommendations for you on where to go and what to see. Good day, Jerome. It's great to be here. And on the first and foremost, I would like us to take a trip to the world of Victor Frankenstein that is being reinterpreted right now uh, by the Looking Glass Theater. Uh, I think this is going to be, this is a really interesting way of uh, telling that story for a new generation of Americans, younger generation of Americans that really think about Frankenstein as a sort of a horror story and a love story that's horror, but it's really more about science 
and it's about our commitment to truth, and it's about our commitment to modern principles. And yet something monstrous happens in between. And this show— Is this an analogy to anything we should think about in our current political scene? I think so. I think it has a lot of relevance, and I think the way that this show has been reconceived has a lot to do with what the zeitgeist of what's going on, our anti-science sort of attitude, and the monstrous kind of approach that we have to uh, our discourse and politics and other things that we're discussing. Uh, It would be really an interesting thing to see, and it's only going to be here there for a couple of more weeks. So I would highly encourage people to catch that. That's Frankenstein Uh, at the Looking Glass Theater. Yeah, exactly. And there's a couple of fun things going on. Sangria Festival. We think of sangria as a sort of fun drink of the Spanish world and the Latin world. And there is a festival going on this weekend, uh, tomorrow, August 17th, and Sunday, August 18th at Humble Park, 3021 West Division. Go there and get your fill of sangria. There is also a gelato festival going on somewhere in the loop. Uh, so give uh, give that a try, and that's happening both days. And I also wanted to uh, mention uh, another thing that's going on. It's called Envisioning Justice Exhibition, and the reception is tomorrow at uh, 2 p.m. at the School of the Art Institute, uh, Chicago Sullivan Galleries, 33 South State Street. It's it's a uh, uh, Basically, art uh, that is uh, inspired by a sense of justice, and Illinois Humanities has sponsored that. So give that a try also. All right. And that's uh, Envisioning Justice is at the School of the Art Institute, uh, 33 South State Street. Uh, that's the Sullivan Gallery there. Yes. But the, uh, but really the most important thing that I think is going on this weekend, and we re- it's a show that started uh, late last month in July at Joby Art Center out in Bridgeport at 1029 West 35th Street. And the show is called Synergy, From Manila to Acapulco. Uh, Both uh, Mexico and the Philippines were Spanish colonies. And this is about a group of Filipino artists and Mexican artists doing a show and exploring the commonalities of creative streams within both cultures. And it's a really fascinating show. I highly encourage people to check it out. And we have some uh, some of the participating artists with us today. With us is uh, Cesar Conde, and he is a co-curator of the exhibit and a Filipino-American contemporary artist himself. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Jerome, and good afternoon, Nari. Good afternoon. And also with us is Eulalio Fabier de Silva. He is a painter whose work is featured in the exhibit. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, and good afternoon to you all. Um, Cesar, tell us a bit about how this idea came about, because this is not like the first idea that pops out of people's heads when they're going to have an art exhibit. So let's do the Mexico-Filipino <laughs> art exhibit thing. Absolutely. Well, we don't... The, the, um, Synergy, the Acapulco Manila Galleon trade, happened um, in 1570 to 1815. It's a common shared history between Filipinos and Mexicans, and most specifically now with Filipino Americans and Mexican Americans. So I came out with this idea, and thank you, Sergio Gomez, for making this idea come into fruition, with finding a commonality between two immigrant communities in the United States on how we can use art as a bridge to talk about immigration, racism, and how do we celebrate our his- co-history with each other 
So Joby Art Center provided us a space and Sergio, who is the artistic director, when I presented to him the idea about, hey, did you hear about the, do you know we used to have a galleon trade? Do you know that there's a Manila town in Acapulco? Do you know that there's a lot of Noatil words in the Tagalog language? Do you know that we have this? And a lot of Filipino Americans don't even know that, we, that this ha- this is our commonality, and a lot of Mexican Americans don't even know that we had this commonality. And now with this border building, Filipino Americans believe that this is not, not going to affect us. What's happening in, in the border right now is not going to affect us, but it will affect us, and it is affecting us. Um, so I thought about using art as a venue to have this open discussion, but also celebrating each other's culture through this exhibit. Uh, that sounds terrific. I don't think anybody, your people don't know about the Manila Galleon trade. It's uh, something that, um, I don't know, it, it went on for a no, long time, no. but it was a pretty serious thing, huh? It's, it's absolutely, um, it's, it's an interconnectedness with each other's culture. You know, when I go to Mexico, I feel like I'm in the Philippines, except people speak Spanish. And Mexicans who go to the Philippines feel like they're Mexican, except <laughs> Filipino. You know, they, and so we have this fantastic brotherhood and sisterhood that is so keen in our blood that we need to use that as an asset, especially now when we're talking about political discourse, that we need to ally each other with each other's struggle. Um, as white nationalism rises up, we are becoming the target of hate, and we need to fight this together. And uh, we not only need to make coalition with each others community, but we have to also expand it with the African-American communities and other communities that have been marginalized through the current, by the current administration. You know what? Uh, looking at the, this is a question for both of you, and Eulalia, maybe you want to address this a little bit more. Uh, looking at the, some of the work in there, it's sometimes hard to tell which one's Filipino, which one is Mexican. <laughs> you kind of see that there are trades uh, between the, uh, there are commonalities within them. And I first thought that maybe the re- uh, my reaction is that they're all all basically modern art and modern art starts to look the same where no matter where part what part of the world it comes from but i think there is something deeper than that going on within these yeah um earlier we we talked a little bit about that yeah. and uh yes there's if you see in in the modern art you would see um ancient um symbolisms and um everything that's filtering through right. the ages, and it all comes out and manifests in different forms. Right. And so um, in this exhibit, you would see the celebration of, of uh, two cultures. In fact, in more than two cultures. Right. But this is specifically, you know, Mexico and Philippine um, synergy, if you will. Right. But yes, uh, a lot of people would comment on my work and say, hey, is this, this is not... Filipino, or this is not, you know, what is this? So, art is really art, and so I guess some different artists would um, manifest in their work yeah. their cultural. And maybe we should but, just do away with the mental categories that we right, have created right. as to what constitutes Mexican art and right, exactly. Filipino art and everything else, uh, and start to look at for human uh, commonalities in between. Yeah, it's a celebration of, of everybody. 
after all. It's not just exclusively uh, Filipino and Mexicans. It's, it's everybody. Right. How do you make a piece about that, Eulalio, that, 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 that <laughs> expresses that? Because that's a, that's, a, that's a hard, heavy burden, man. Yeah, it is. <laughs> well, personally, I mean, it's inevitably when people say, well, you know, you have to make like Filipino art in your work, but inevitably I'm already Filipino, so it's in, inherent. But, um, you know, I, I came here at a young age, and so a lot of the things that you see and it filters through what you hear and it, it's, it boils down in my art particularly is it's about the feeling and uh, and uh, what remains, you know, what Filipino in me. So but again, it's, it's, it's there's no label when it comes to a particular trademark or is this Filipino or this is Mexican, you know. Yeah. And so uh, – those begins to play into the stereotypes. And yeah. so I think the art is a celebration of, again, is this title is synergy. And so you would identify with certain... Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I th- but yeah. the th- thing is that sometimes the market dictates you certain right. things to play into certain stereotypes, you know, as right. far as, like, I can tell from Middle Eastern person, Middle Eastern background, you know, there are collectors who have big, you know, uh, pockets to spend money on Islamic art or Middle Eastern mm-hmm. art. And mm-hmm. what does make an art uh, Islamic or Middle Eastern? Right. It's, right. you know, uh, so you, this is why you get Arab artists or Iranian artists put a little bit of a calligraphy, uh, Arab calligraphy or Persian calligraphy <laughs> on the corner to give it that identity. Otherwise, uh, you know, the collectors are not really interested in it. <laughs> you know, what, I, what I love about this um, this exhibit particularly is that like what you said Dari is that you cannot tell who is Filipino and who is Mexican however there's a, you know but the, the, there's a fantastic thread though that goes along with this exhibit which is you could feel each individual artist's nuances of their cultural background like when I look at um, when I look up Magdalena Aguila's um, piece uh, where she had sewn collages of her photographic memory of her grandmother in the Philippines. And then I look at this beautiful piece of a giant tortilla that's, that, that has this, this embroidery of words. The good old tortilla. It's, it's so fantastic. And there's that, you know, the, the, it's, it's the wave that each person used that material and used their own cultural background to create something that reflects their cultural nuances and influences. And thus, you know, it's celebrating it, right? That's that same token where it's just like erasing the borders and creating a new one that embraces diversity in each other. Right, right, right. yeah. Uh, absolutely. How has the exhibit been received? You've been up for a little bit. You've been people have come to see it. What are people saying? <laughs> it's so exciting because this is the first exhibit ever in which we have two large groups from different backgrounds with shared history come together in one fantastic space. There's a hunger for it, Jerome. It's it's uh, uh, people come in and they're like, "What? What? What? There's Filipino art. There's Filipino artists. What? What? You know, we're all in the same space. So, yeah, it's very, it's happening. It's fantastic. It's been received with open arms and and with delight and more hunger for it. 
That's oh, great. Well, that's great. Now, now you got to do another exhibit. Now you got to do some more things. <laughs> exactly. Oh, exactly. Well, that's the whole plan. Is is to create. Um, uh, it's to create a fantastic community. We can we, we can engage in, in 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 this fantastic dialogue of of celebration. But you know, really talking and diving deep inside our ethos as Americans, as right. Americans of all yeah. backgrounds. Yeah, yeah. And there is a lot of innovation uh, happening within the Filipino-American context, mm-hmm. broadening the concept. We had about a year or so ago a group of uh, Filipino-American chefs who are broadening yes. the cuisine, and they were very yes. innovative, and they invited us to go to some of the events, and I found out about food ingredients coming from Philippines that I would have never known <laughs> about. Amazing, Absolutely. amazing level of innovation going on at that. So, oh. so a lot of, you know, uh, you know, hats off to you guys. You're really trying, and you're trying. You're doing some good work. So, you know, well, that's well, thank, that, you. thank you so much. Yeah. Oh, come and see us at Joby Art Center. We're open mm-hmm. until. Yeah, I like uh, to plug September in. 13th. I mean, tonight we have the third, uh, <laughs> the third Friday opening at the Joby Art Center. So, uh, invite the whole Chicago if to. Uh, by all yes, means. Chicago. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So, we'll see you tonight, 7 yeah. to 10. 7 to 10. Center. Yeah. Yes. That sounds fantastic. And and you're uh, ongoing through September 13th. Yes. So yes. we've got like uh, a month or so. Yeah. Yes. Still Can't wait to see you. Well, congratulations <laughs> on the exhibit. Thanks a lot, uh, Cesar Conde, uh, co curator of the exhibit. And, and Sergio Gomez. Sergio Gomez. And uh, thanks uh, to Eulalio. And Fabi De Silver, he is a Filipino-American painter whose work is featured in the exhibit Synergy from Manila to Acapulco. And thanks very much to you, Nari Safavi, for another fine weekend passport. I hope people will get out there and enjoy the world. It was a privilege to be here. Thank you. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Ayeda. Thanks to Ashish Valentine and congratulations to production assistant Jenny Friedland. It's her last day. She is going on to bigger and better things at CNN. Thanks for all your collaboration and uh, help and ideas since January. Thanks very much, Jenny Friedland. We'll be keeping an eye on you. I'm Jerome McDonald. Yay! Thanks to Mike Gilmore for engineering and bringing in the sound effects, the appropriate sound effects at the appropriate moment. (laughs) I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.